the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, Sam, I still got that echo. I don't know if you can hear it, but anyway, glad to have you with us. James Blinn producing, Sam Maupin engineering today's program. Today we'll cover the day's headlines. We'll also uh, talk with Charles Krismeyer. He's the author of Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We'll also take a look at what uh, the church in Ukraine is doing to minister to the people under very difficult One would almost say impossible circumstances, but you might find what they're doing encouraging and also help us direct our prayers to pray with understanding. Taking a look at the news, swaths of Europe are rushing to secure their energy independence and spur an energy revolution after natural gas powerhouse Russia invaded Ukraine. The Netherlands, France, Poland, Belgium and the United Kingdom, along with Germany and Italy, are all ramping up their energy sectors, including by expanding their wind, solar and nuclear energy options. Eli Bremer, a former Olympian and Colorado Senate candidates said the transgender sports issue, in particular, Leah Thomas, may prove vital in turning a mostly blue state red. And in an anthem protest, South Carolina's basketball coach Don Staley's uh, Gamecocks were not on the court for the national anthem before the game against Louisville. Staley's team was has stayed in the locker room during the anthem or protested in some form since the middle of 2020-2021 college basketball season. She told uh, Anscape at the time that players were sitting during the national anthem in almost every game that season to bring awareness to racial injustice in our country. Goya Food CEO Bob Yunanu warned that the war between Russia and Ukraine is having a devastating effect on the global food supply. And former President Barack Obama will head to the White House Tuesday when he'll join President Biden and Vice President Harris for a health care event. So what is a woman? A handful of Biden administration federal agencies were unable to define the meaning of the word woman. Accused of politicizing tragedy, President Biden addressed the horrific shooting in Sacramento, urging Congress to pass gun control restrictions in the wake of the tragedy. The Senate Judiciary Committee deadlocked on the question of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court, resulting in a perfectly split 11 to 11 vote along partisan lines. Well, the tie means another vote will be held. It was held uh, in the chamber. A simple majority of 51 votes is needed to advance her nomination, which Jackson is likely to garner. She did garner that single vote and uh, her nomination will move forward uh, to the, uh, the U.S. Senate. Lisa Murkowski is the second Republican, by the way, who has said she will vote in favor of the confirmation of Katanji Brown Jackson. I should say Judge 
Brown Jackson. Uh, Given that the balance of power between Republicans and Democrats is evenly divided in the Senate, her prospects have been encumbered by a political tug of wars, especially since both parties have the same number of seats in every committee. For the last two weeks, some GOP members on the committee have hammered Jackson on a record of leniency on child pornography cases during her hearings. Hearings, rather. Democratic Senator Durbin spoke before the first vote on Monday. It's the first time that the committee has had the opportunity to advance the nomination of a black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. Now, some would suggest the fact that she is the first black woman to be nominated and they shouldn't really ask difficult questions. They shouldn't hold her accountable for her, her judicial philosophy. And again, I find it patronizing and insulting to suggest that because she's a black woman, she's like tissue paper and cannot stand the difficult Uh, process of being confirmed. She is a qualified judge in terms of her background and experience. She, like every other Supreme Court justice, can uh, withstand the pressure of um, going through the nominating process. To suggest otherwise, it seems to me, is something of a racist point of view in itself. Well, calling the president's effort largely irrelevant, Axios reporter Hans Nichols said the President Biden's economic accomplishments were largely irrelevant with inflation at a 40-year high. And calling for a public reckoning, a Sunday editorial in the Washington Post called for a public reckoning over the media's handling over the Hunter Biden laptop story. Interestingly enough, the Washington Post tried to break the story before the campaign, but it wasn't taken seriously. Liberal networks are fretting that the GOP will triumph over Democrats in the 2022 midterm elections. Of course, that's speculation. The election hasn't yet been held, and who knows, anything can happen. Representative Elise Stefanik condemned Vladimir Putin and advocated for the U.S. to send more weapons and munitions to Ukraine. In a dire warning, uh, Rapidian uh, Energy, the president, Bob McNally, told CNN that tapping oil reserves won't lower gas prices and that the U.S. could be in trouble if we don't replenish. That is some um, that uh, Reserve is in case of emergency, if there's some sort of a military action where we literally are in an emergency and to deplete it over the next how many months the president announced uh, could be a serious issue if it's not replenished. Maryland Governor Larry Hogden derided Florida's parental rights in education bill as absurd, saying it would not have been uh, would not have passed in his state. Hillary Clinton praised the job President Biden has done in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine while asserting that there is more the U.S. should be doing. So kind of having it both ways. Warning of a bankrupt America, Nikki Haley, a former U.N. ambassador, says President Biden's budget sends the message that America doesn't care about the fiscal sanity and economic strength on which our nation's security depends. And Mark Levin blamed the corrupt, opportunistic media for covering up the Hunter Biden laptop story, they now affirm and call for a special counsel to investigate the Biden family. Now, I should clarify, the New York Times and others are now affirming that the laptop was, in fact, a legitimate story, but they are failing to make any comment on the connection between the president and his son and his misdeeds. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And a reminder, coming up in our second hour, Charles Krismeyer, Hearts of the Fathers leaving a legacy that lasts. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 
Arthur Herman, he warns that the coordinated de facto alliance of China, Iran and Russia is set to on destabilizing the world from Ukraine and Taiwan to the Arabian Peninsula. You're praying, right, about how all these things are unfolding. Um, one other commentator, Michael McGonigal, without, says that without Reagan surviving uh, attempt uh, the attempt on his life in 1981, there would have been no independent Ukraine in 1991 and no President Zelensky. A rather interesting um, thing we'll, uh, re- we'll take a look at a bit later in the program. In a Grammy plea, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a virtual appearance during the ceremonies and asked viewers to tell the story of Ukraine's invasion. On the outs with the mouse, uh, some pretty big Disney stars have been canceled over their cultural views over the last several years. And on Championship Monday, the NC2A Men's Basketball National Championship will feature two of the top schools in the history of the game in Kansas and North Carolina. The Kiev region has been retaken at a heavy cost to Ukrainians. From the story in NBC News, Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Malyar, she posted Saturday that the entire Kiev region has been liberated from Russian military forces on the minister's official foot Facebook page. Meanwhile, Ukrainian negotiator David Arakhamia said Saturday that draft peace um, treaty documents between Ukraine and Russia were at an advanced enough stage to allow for direct talks between Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian President Zelensky. He indicated there is a high probability that such a meeting could take place in Turkey. Now, that will be interesting to uh, to follow from the Wall Street Journal. People in this city buried their neighbors in mass graves after Russian troops withdrew from the area around Ukraine's capital, leaving behind corpses, landmines and what Ukraine a Ukrainian officials said is evidence of a potential war crime or crimes. Locals buried scores of the dead in mass graves as uh, a cold rain fell. Others flagged down troops to show them where the dead lay. Mr. Zelensky, the president, said retreating Russian forces had placed mines in houses, laid trap wires and booby trapped corpses on face the nation. Indeed, this is genocide, Zelensky says, adding that Ukraine is being destroyed and exterminated by Russian forces. And from the Hill, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, I should say, um, well, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on Sunday said, Russia has already experienced a strategic defeat in its invasion of Ukraine. There's some debate over whether or not that was premature, but that's a direct quote. President Biden is facing bipartisan outrage on the termination of the Title 42 order set for May after considering current public health conditions and an increased availability of tools to fight COVID-19, such as highly effective vaccines and therapeutics. The CDC director has... uh, determined that an order suspending the right to introduce migrants into the United States is no longer necessary. Hot Air reports that some moderate Democrats are pushing back and not mincing their words of disapproval. Senator Sinema said that the decision by CDC announced on Friday shows that Biden has shown a lack of understanding about the crisis at our border. More from Cinema uh, Today's decision to announce an end to Title 42, despite not yet having a comprehensive plan ready shows a lack of understanding about the crisis at our border. Kelly says this is the wrong decision. It's unacceptable. Manchin reiterated what he said earlier this week. Immigration reform should happen first until we have comprehensive bipartisan immigration reform that commits to securing our borders and providing a pathway to citizenship for qualified immigrants. Title 42 must stay in place. 
And Kevin McCarthy on Twitter writes, President Biden is ending Title 42, which prohibits the entry of immigrants who pose health threats. Yet Americans are still required to wear masks on planes. A Los Angeles judge ruled the California diversity mandate for corporations is unconstitutional. The judge who handed down the ruling on Friday concluded that the law violated California's constitutional equal protection clause, according to a summary judgment granted to Judicial Watch, which is a conservative legal group that filed a permanent injunction against the measure. Signed into law by Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom in 2020, the law mandates that corporate boards of publicly traded companies with a main executive office in California must have a racial or ethnic minority or a member of the LGBTQ plus community serving on their boards by the end of 2021 deemed unconstitutional. The Associated Press reports the decision declared unconstitutional, one of the most blatant and significant attacks in the modern era on constitutional prohibitions against discrimination. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton said in his statement. Well, Disney is facing backlash for its overt hypocrisy, among other things. Florida Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez uh, joined Fox and Friends uh, weekend Saturday and argued that Disney, the most magical place on earth, has now dis- uh, digressed into the most hypocritical and woke place. The Florida lieutenant governor made these comments after Disney faced backlash over its stance on the parental rights bill signed into law this week. They can stand there and they can complain, they can criticize, they can threaten, they uh, that they're doing, uh, they're going to work to repeal this legislation, but they certainly have a lot of work to do within their own ranks. They're doing business with the Chinese Communist Party. They don't care about the human rights abuses that occur there night and day. Log Cabin Republicans uh, on Twitter stated Disney's idea of equality is radically redefining gender and pushing sexual lesson plans to children while investing in countries that still harshly criminalize LGBT people for legally just existing. Teaching kindergartners about sex is not equality. Disney is broken. Breitbart weighs in. Despite an aggressive mainstream media campaign against the legislation, a recent poll shows that the Florida Democrat voters support the Republican-backed law 52% to 36%. And PJ Media, DisneyBizJournal.com editor Ray Keating is sounding an alarm for Disney management, specifically CEO Bob Chapik. Uh, Here's a suggestion for Disney CEO. Get back to business, that is, excellence in storytelling, and stop wasting shareholders' money on political crusades that have nothing to do with Disney's business, Keating told Fox News Digital. A Maryland Senate Bill 669 would legalize infanticide. Well, Senate Bill 669, the chief sponsor of which is State Senator Will Smith, states that no person can be investigated or charged for experiencing a miscarriage perinatal death related to failure to act or stillbirth. The perinatal period consists of the period shortly before and after birth from the 20th to 29th week of gestation to one to four weeks after birth. In other words, anywhere up to four weeks after birth of the child, you and your sexual partner conceived and you decide you really don't want, well, hey, no problem. Just don't feed it. Don't get medical care. Don't do anything. And if the Maryland law passes... You can do so with impunity. Dr. Albert Moeller weighs in. He says, now here's what's really important. The perinatal period means the period of pregnancy or the period of pregnancy and birth. And that would go up to at least until the moment of birth. But 
The phrase perinatal period, actually in legal and medical terms, extends beyond even the moment of birth. This would have meant no criminal scrutiny if the infant dies, even in that perinatal period. But after the moment of birth, it was a truly chilling development. Meanwhile, former Governor Sarah Palin announced a congressional run in Alaska. The former GOP vice presidential candidate and Alaska governor will run for Alaska's at-large Congress seat vacated by the late Representative Don Young, she announced on her Facebook page on Friday. Today, I'm announcing my candidacy for the U.S. House seat representing Alaska, Palin wrote. Public service is a calling, and I would be uh, honored to represent the men and women of Alaska in Congress, just as Representative Young did for 49 years. The New York Post weighed in. The 2008 GOP vice presidential nominee will run in a crowd special election for Alaska's only seat in the U.S. House of Representatives left vacant when longtime Representative Don Young died two weeks ago. And Nikki Haley, excited to see Sarah Palin get back into the fight to take our country back. We need her voice in Congress, she posted on Twitter. Dmitry Medvedev has threatened to export agricultural food to only friendly countries. The former Russian president and senior security official, he threatened Friday to restrict agriculture and food exports only to friendly countries of Russia as a retaliation for the sanctions imposed by the West over its invasion of Ukraine. Russia will not supply our products and agricultural products to our enemies. Medvedev warned Friday on his uh, Telegram channel. Uh, We will supply food and crops only to our friends, he said, adding that Russia will sell both for rubles and for their national currency in agreed portions. From Breitbart, Medvedev's threat echoes only being made by the Russian government, such as that reportedly unfriendly nations will soon be forced to pay for a variety of Russian resources, including the country's much sought after gas exports in rubles only or be cut off from supply completely. We'll continue to follow that story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. And a reminder, Charles Chris Meyer will join us in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Netflix and Sony, they paused a Will Smith project post-slap. Well, from the story, entertainment giants Netflix and Sony have put upcoming projects with Will Smith on hold after he slapped comedian Chris Rock at the 2022 Oscars. Smith was due to star in an upcoming Netflix movie, Fast and Loose, but sources told the outlet that the streaming giant set the project aside, at least for now. So reports the Business Insider. The Daily Beast says Smith resigned from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Friday and wrote in his statement that he hoped the decision will put the focus back on those who deserve attention for their achievements and allow the Academy to get back to its incredible work, the incredible work it does to support creativity and artistry in film, end quote. Lori Lightfoot um, claims that crime is due to unloved youth. Well, she's not too far off, I suppose, in many respects. Well, the Chicago police just released data showing that 57 percent of carjacking suspects are juveniles. And on Saturday, the Chicago mayor, she said that young people that feel unloved are part of the issue. From the Federalist, while I acknowledge that single mothers can be great mothers, there's still something lacking that is necessary for children's emotional development and goes beyond mere economics. That missed element is a father, end quote. 
Well, the U.S. will provide $50 million to Moldova to assist them in their humanitarian efforts. The United States will give Moldova the $50 million to help it cope with the impacts of the Russian war against Ukraine. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield said during a visit to the former Soviet Republic on Sunday. She said the funding would support programs, training and equipment for border management, efforts to counter human trafficking, help to improve accountability and transparency in the justice sector, and combat corruption and cybercrime. Nearly 400,000 refugees have already fled Ukraine through Moldova, with about a quarter remaining in the country since Russia invaded Ukraine. California's corporate diversity quota law has been struck down. A 2020 California law requiring public companies to include at least one minority, either racial or gender, on their board of directors was ruled unconstitutional on Friday. Amazon workers unionized in New York, but not in Alabama. For the first time in the big tech company's history, workers at Amazon's warehouse in Staten Island, New York, voted to join a union. In a vote, 2,654 to 2,131 employees voted in favor of joining the Amazon labor union. Amazon has long fought against unionization, but now sees its largest facility in New York unionized. However, that was not the case for the company's warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, where workers again rejected joining a union, 993 to 875. Last spring, these Amazon employees rejected unionization by nearly a two-to-one margin, though claims of the company improperly influencing the election bought the pro-union faction another vote. That also failed. Republicans secured a last-second redistricting win. Uh, Democrats had been touting their successes in the redistricting fight over the last several months as they've won several court battles, and some estimates pegged their their gain in House seats to be four or five. But that all changed recently as Republicans secured a string of court rulings that pushed the estimate of Democrats' gains down to one or two. Democrats spent a lot of time crowing. They were spiking the football at the end of the third quarter. That's a quote from the National Republican redistricting trust president, Adam Kincaid. We knew then, like I'm saying now, that they were exactly where we thought they were going to be at this point. The recent Republican victories come in the states of Ohio, Maryland and New York. Furthermore, with the strong political headwinds the Democrats are facing and with Republicans needing to net just five seats to reclaim the majority control of the House, the Democrats hope uh, of using gerrymandering as a mechanism to stave off those losses may not work out. New York City is keeping kids in masks, at least for now. Even after New York City finally saw the light and ended its dubious mask mandate, the city's leaders still can't quite let go entirely. Unfortunately, young children, those least threatened by COVID-19, will be the ones forced to continue suffering under the uh, virtue signaling mandate as kids ages two through four will continue to be required to wear masks in daycare. Naturally, Mayor Eric Adams erroneously asserted that the reason for the mask mandate was for the children's health and safety. Even as hospitalizations due to COVID have remained low, the city's average just 13 cases a day, Big Apple Health Commissioner Dr. Ashwin Vashan recommended waiting a little bit longer before making masks optional for this age group. New York Post columnist Carl uh, Markowitz, who recently moved out of New York City to Florida, uh, expressly uh, over concerns about the harm the city's masking policy was having on her children, minced no words. And I quote, 
New York City Health Commissioner Ashwin Vashon is the person recommending toddler masking in the face of absolutely all evidence showing it to be unnecessary and even harmful. Don't forget his name. There are people who purposely hurt children during this pandemic, and he is one of them, end quote. In other news, the Biden administration plans to lift Title 42 at the end of May, despite fears of a looming migrant wave. Moderate Democrats are sounding the alarm. The House voted to decriminalize marijuana at the federal level. The bill passed 220 to 204, with three Republicans voting yes and two Democrats voting no. Six were killed and 12 hurt in a Sacramento shooting. President Biden used the shooting to push his gun control agenda. And President Biden's wish for a Trump prosecution leaked as Democrats mount a pressure campaign on the Department of Justice. More than 62,000 illegal immigrants got past Border Patrol agents in March alone. And massive engagement on Trump's Truth Social uh, provides new evidence of big tech shadow banning conservatives. Among media reports of the platform's untimely demise, conservatives on Donald Trump's Truth Social are seeing far stronger engagement than on its big tech competitors who have long faced allegations of censoring conservative media and shadow banning accounts they disagree with. Shadow banning is when a social media platform effectively blocks someone from their platform without their knowledge by making their posts and comments less visible or not visible at all. Truth Social drew in 1.2 million uh, installments uh, its first month and accounts are still being onboarded. Elon Musk has become Twitter's biggest shareholder after taking a 9.2 percent stake in the company. And the South Carolina women's basketball team is catching flack for skipping the national anthem at the final four. Victory, a male champ, cannot compete as a woman after female cyclists threatened to boycott. A judge upheld Jelaine Maxwell's sex trafficking conviction. And Franklin Graham has asked Putin and Zelensky for a Holy Week ceasefire. We'll see what comes of that. Former Vice President Pence's new freedom agenda promotes patriotic education and challenges big tech. Well, on this day in history, 1841, President William Henry Harrison dies of pneumonia one month after his inauguration, becoming the first U.S. chief executive to die in office. 1850, the city of Los Angeles is incorporated. 1917, the U.S. Senate votes 82 to 6 in favor of declaring war against Germany. The House would follow suit two days later by a vote of 373 to 50. 1945, during World War II, U.S. forces liberate the Nazi concentration camp of Ordorf in Germany. Hungary is liberated as as, uh, Soviet forces clear out the remaining German troops. 1968. Martin Luther King Jr. is shot and killed while standing on a balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. 1949, 12 nations, including the United States, signed the North Atlantic Treaty in Washington, D.C. 1974, Microsoft is founded by Bill Gates and Paul Allen in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 1988, on this day in history, the Arizona Senate convicts Governor Evan Meacham of two charges of official misconduct and removes him from office. Meacham becomes the first U.S. governor to be impeached and removed from office in nearly six decades. 2018, saying the situation has reached a point of crisis, President Trump signs a proclamation directing the deployment of the National Guard to the U.S.-Mexico border to fight illegal immigration. Also, on this day in history in 2018, Facebook reveals that tens of millions more people might have been exposed in a privacy scandal involving Cambridge Analytica 
a Trump-affiliated data mining firm. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, after the United States says it would impose 25 percent tariffs on $50 billion of imports from China, Beijing quickly retaliates by listing $50 billion of products it could hit with its own 25 percent tariffs. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Charles Crismeyer, author of Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. And we'll also talk about um, what's happening in Ukraine in the church and with those who are attempting to help provide material needs for their countrymen in country. Well, the Senate Judiciary Committee deadlocked 11 to 11 on Supreme Court nominee Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, setting up a Senate floor vote is likely to reveal just how much GOP support she will uh, really get. So far, two members of the uh, Republican Party have said, yes, I will support her. It means Senator Lisa Murkowski, the Republican from Alaska, who announced today, Senator Susan Collins, um, who announced uh, she will vote for uh, the judge some days ago, and Mitt Romney, who has uh, yet to announce whether he plans to vote in her favor, will be forced on record in short order. Well, the party line 11-11 tie in committee uh, meant that there was a second vote in which um, the tie was broken. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer can call a floor vote likely later Monday on a motion to discharge Jackson from the Judiciary Committee. This means the changer, chamber rather would be able to advance through the cloture process throughout the week, setting up a likely Thursday or Friday final confirmation vote, barring any unforeseen circumstances. As I mentioned, Senator Susan Collins is the only Republican to announce she would vote for Jackson um, up until today. Representatives for Romney and Murkowski didn't uh, respond to requests previous, but Murkowski came out earlier today saying she will vote in favor of the judge. The committee vote was delayed for several hours because the flight carrying Senator Alex Padilla, a Democrat from California, from Los Angeles to Washington, returned to the airport due to a passenger's medical emergency. The committees are split evenly in the 50-50 Senate, um, meaning matters that don't get bipartisan support can't go straight to the floor. But the power-sharing agreement between Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell allows for a simple majority vote on a discharge motion when committees are deadlocked. This prevents the minority from being uh, being able to create complete gridlock by simply voting against matters in committee. Well, uh, Senator Schumer will move to discharge the consideration of Jackson's nomination, which will lead to uh, up to four hours of debate, even to, uh, evenly divided between the majority and the minority. If a simple majority agrees to discharge her nomination, which is expected, then it will be placed on the Senate's executive calendar. And again, a vote is expected probably no later than this week. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky described Russian forces as murderers and rapists as the extent of killings in the town surrounding towns, plural, surrounding Kiev began to emerge, vowing to prosecute what he called war crimes as Russia ramped up attacks in the east of the country. More than 100 civilians were found buried in mass graves in the commuter town of Bucha. After Russian troops withdrew last week, sparking an outcry from Western leaders and adding to the pressure from the Biden administration and its European allies to take stronger action against Moscow. President Biden called for a war crimes trial over 
uh, Buka and said Russian President Vladimir Putin must be held accountable for the war in Ukraine. We have to get all the details so this can be an actual war crime trial. This guy is brutal and what's happening in Buka is outrageous and everyone has seen it, the president told reporters at the White House today, adding that Washington was seeking additional sanctions against Moscow. French President Emmanuel Macron said on Monday he called for additional sanctions on Russian oil and coal despite the pain it would inflict on Europe's economies. It's very clear today that there are clear indications of war crimes, he said. On French radio, it was more or less established that this is the Russian army. Well, Ukrainian soldiers and police said Monday they were clearing Bucha of booby traps set by fleeing Russian forces. An explosion sounded, but com- uh, combat engineers crowding the sidewalk near the town's administrative headquarters paid little notice. There were signs that normal life was gradually returning. A girl in a purple helmet rode a bicycle past a destroyed coronavirus clinic. A couple walked four dogs off a leash. Crowds lined up at the central hospital to receive medical care, but there were bodies strewn throughout the street, which were seen in many of the much of the coverage uh, here in the U.S. In the early afternoon, the president, Volodymyr Zelensky, arrived in Bucha in a convoy of military and police cars, wearing a tactical army jacket and pants and an armored vest. He strode into the hospital with a formation of guards. In a video address the night before, he said hundreds of people had been killed in the area surrounding the capital and vowed to hold the perpetrators to account. He is still continuing to ask that uh, more munitions and help be made available. On Sunday, Mr. Zelensky said on CBS's Face the Nation that it was his duty to continue talks with Moscow despite the evidence of atrocities. It's difficult to say how, after all that has been done, we can have any kind of negotiations. That's on the personal level, but as a president, I have to do it. Missiles struck the city of Odessa for a second consecu- consecutive day, according to a Ukrainian military spokesman. Monday strikes followed the targeting of an oil refinery and three storage facilities for lubricants and fuel in the city on Sunday, which the Russian Defense Ministry said had been used to supply Ukrainian troops with Molotov, uh, Molotov cocktails. The mayor um, of uh, one town said Russian forces had also fired several missiles at the city overnight but didn't disclose the targets. One mayor and her family were all murdered. Well, for the last month, Ukrainian President Zelensky has been rallying his people against the vicious brutality that they're witnessing, facing near unsurmountable odds, the or insurmountable, I would say. The former comedian has been dodging bullets and bombs, but he's also been in a position to do so because a former president of another time dodged death from a bullet of would-be assassin John Hinckley's gun. Well, so argues uh, Michael McGonagall. He says President Zelensky was three years old on March the 30th, 1981, when Ronald Reagan emerged from the Washington Hilton. Reagan had just delivered a speech to the AFL-CIO. He was waving and smiling to those outside on that rainy Tuesday. The 40th president was struck by a single bullet that broke a rib and punctured and collapsed his left lung, lodging itself just one inch from his heart. Miraculously, Reagan survived. A man of deep Christian faith, Reagan long attributed his unlikely recovery to a divine plan, a belief that God had spared him for a very specific purpose. Recounting the moment in his diary later that day, he wrote, Whatever happens now, I owe my life to God and will uh, try to serve him in every way I can, end quote. Well, in the weeks and months that followed, the president, President Reagan, became convinced that he had been spared for a similar purpose, to rid the world of atheistic Soviet communism. 
To Reagan, there was no greater injustice than preventing access to the gospel and therefore eternal salvation. Throughout his presidency, he laid the groundwork for the collapse of the Soviet Union. He believed the best defense was a strong offense, but he also appealed and collaborated with another fellow anti-communist, Pope John Paul II. They believed faith was even stronger than all the armies of the world. They also shared a similar animosity for the wicked communist ideology, believing it enslaved and killed millions of innocent people. Well, during his second term, President Reagan also forged a unique and consequential relationship with Mikhail Gorbachev, who served as the general secretary of the Communist Party of the ill-fated Soviet Union. When Ronald Reagan left office in January of 89, the pieces were in place for the collapse of communism, though no one suspected it would happen as quickly as it did. Soon after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89, Reagan's two friends, Gorbachev and Pope John Paul II, met at the Vatican. During their discussions, the Pope zeroed in on Ukraine, demanding the Catholic Church and religion be made legal in the country. Moved by the pontiff's appeal, Mr. Gorbachev promised there would be laws passed to protect freedom of religion, and that's precisely what happened. Volodymyr Zelensky was 13 years of age on the 24th of August in 1991 when Ukraine declared its independence from the Soviet Union. In an instant, the youngster was free of communist oppression and free to pursue his dreams. By the age of 17, he was an entrepreneur traveling as a comedian and actor throughout Eastern Europe. When the now Ukrainian president announced plans to run for office in 2018, he said he was motivated by a desire to bring professional, decent people to power and to change the mood and timber of the political establishment. When Governor Reagan announced his campaign in 1976 to challenge incumbent Gerald Ford for the presidency, he said, I would like to be president because I would like to see this country become more again, uh, once again, rather, a country where a little six-year-old girl can grow up knowing the same freedom that I knew when I was a six-year-old growing up in America. Well, as the writer points out, without Ronald Reagan surviving the attempt on his life in 81, there would have been no independent Ukraine in 91 and no President Zelensky in 2019. In many ways, Zelensky is now following Ronald Reagan's footsteps, surviving attempts on his life while battling an ideology that threatens to destroy the lives and freedoms of all Ukrainians. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll hear from Charles Crismeyer, author of Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. We'll also uh, learn a little bit more about how some Christian organizations within Ukraine are helping to minister to the physical and spiritual needs of their countrymen. That's all coming up later this hour. Well, household staples are no longer immune to inflation. American consumers are starting to cut costs on mainstays from toothpaste to baby formula. Inflation, inflation rather, is hitting a swath of the economy that had so far proven resistant to substantial price increases. But Procter & Gamble, Clorox, Kraft, Heinz Company, and other consumer product giants have made a bet that consumers will pay up for household products even as inflation takes hold. Well, over the past year, the companies have seen profits and market shares grow as they've raised prices on products from detergent and diapers to snacks and, well, soda. Well, now consumers uh, hit by the cost soaring of everything from gasoline to childcare, 
They're drawing the line, and analysts and retailers say shoppers are buying staples in smaller quantities, switching to cheaper store-named brands and more rigorously hunting for deals. The shift is especially pronounced among lower-income consumers who splurged on household products at the height of the pandemic, they say. Well, private label brands, after two years in which they lost market share to brand names, have begun to lure buyers back in the three-week period ending in March the 20th. Edible private label brands increased their shares slightly, and non-edible store brands held steady, according to data. Well, one um, specialist says that she'd been feeling the pinch of higher prices for months, but started more seriously cutting costs in um, in recent weeks after she spent $92 to fill the gas tank on the family's vehicle. $92. So with inflation not letting up, shoppers are cutting back on staples. You may be... Uh, part of that trend. Grover Norquist argues that the idea that this is only going to impact rich people is how the income tax was sold, noting that all these taxes are introduced and then moved right down to hit middle-income Americans. Well, he's talking about the president's new tax plan, saying it would push top individual income rates to the highest in the developed world. The U.S. would have the highest personal income tax rate in the developed world under the newest White House proposal that would dramatically raise the rates paid by well-off Americans. The budget blueprint that the president unveiled last week includes several tax hikes on the ultra-wealthy and corporations that would push the top U.S. rates on both individual and corporate income to the highest levels in the developed world, according to a new analysis published by the Tax Foundation. Well, the Biden team's uh, proposal would raise the average top tax rate on personal income to 57.4 percent, the steepest rate in all 38 member organizations for economic cooperation and development. The president laid out a series of tax increases, including a billionaire minimum income tax that would establish a 20 percent minimum tax on all U.S. households worth more than 100 million dollars or about 0.01% of Americans. Well, under the proposal, the top sliver of U.S. households would be required to pay a tax rate of at least 20% of their full income or the combination of wage income and whatever they made in unrealized gains. More on that if time permits. If a billionaire isn't paying 20% of their income, they'll owe a top-up payment that makes the difference uh, to meet the minimum uh, wages. Now, Giancarlo Canaparo with uh, Heritage Foundation suggests that this is an unconstitutional wealth tax. He points out that this is a kind of uh, uh, wealth tax that Democrats have favored over time. California Democrats have done it. Congressional Democrats have done it many times. And now it looks like uh, through um, President Biden, he wants to get in on the game. If only uh, they'd pause for a moment, he suggests, to consider or care whether wealth taxes are constitutional. Now, that's a big question. He writes that Biden's proposed wealth tax styled as a minimum income tax on households worth more than $100 million will claim at least, as I mentioned, 20 percent of both income and unrealized capital gains. If that phrase sounds familiar, that's because taxing whatever those are was the key feature of Congressional Democrats short lived proposal last year. Unrealized capital gains don't exist. They're not realized. You can no more tax them directly, as congressional Democrats tried to do, than reclassify them as income, as the president wants to do. A capital gain is the profit you get when you sell an investment for more than you paid for it. When the sale is complete and the money is in your hand, a tax lawyer would call it realized capital gain. If, on the other hand, you choose not to sell an investment that has increased in value since you bought it, 
your capital gain is unrealized, which meant it exists only on paper. Now, that's because its value could just as easily go down tomorrow. And the only way to lock in or realize that gain is by selling the investment. Well, Democrats in Congress, their proposal would have taxed those gains, even though they hadn't existed in real life. That is um, uh, the unrealized gain that may in the next 24 hours to 28 months uh, not exist at all. Well, to summarize briefly, the Constitution forbids Congress from levying any direct tax unless it is apportioned among the states in proportion to the population. A direct tax is a tax on property, which includes money or the income derived from property, which cannot be shifted onto someone else. An income tax is the obvious example, and indeed, income taxes were held unconstitutional until they ratified the 16th Amendment. Likewise, a tax on unrealized capital gains would be a direct tax. The 16th Amendment would not save such a tax, however, because it covers only taxes on incomes. Income as a legal definition in uh, Commissioner versus Green uh, Glenshaw Grass, the Supreme Court held that or should be glass. The Supreme Court held that income is undeniable accession of wealth clearly realized and over which the taxpayer have complete dominion. The many problems for the Biden tax is obvious. First, an unrealized capital gain can't be income because by definition, it's unrealized capital gain. It's not clearly realized. Well, there's more. Second, an unrealized capital gain can't be income because it doesn't yet exist. And I don't need to go into that again, but there you have it. It may, in fact, be unconstitutional. It may pass, but if uh, if it does, it certainly will be challenged in the court. And that will be a rather interesting thing to see in the days ahead. All right. We're out of time for this segment. But coming up, a conversation with Charles Grice, Chris Heimer. Chris Meyer, I'll get this right eventually. The book is titled Hearts of the Father, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest writes that fathers are indispensable to the lives of their children. Study after study has proven that fathers play a critical role toward reducing school dropout rates, substance abuse, suicide, precocious sexual activity, domestic violence, and so on. Yet, in spite of the clear evidence, fatherlessness has continued and alternative family configurations proliferated. Today, over 40% of all babies in the United States are born to unwed mothers. Approximately 25% of children under the age of 18 are being raised without a father, and 50% or 85% in some communities of all children in the United States spend some portion of their childhood years living with only their mothers. Well, since the sexual revolution of the 60s, the majority of pastors, congregations, and denominations have changed their historic positions, becoming more tolerant of divorce, remarriage, and cohabitation. Feminism has disparaged men and ridiculed masculinity as Hollywood presents men as bumbling idiots, womanizers, or control freaks. This has undermined both the traditional family and fatherhood. The consequences, regardless of the cause, are clear and progressively catastrophic. Well, in his new book, Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts, my next guest, attorney and talk show host, uh, Mr. Uh, Charles Krismer, calls fatherlessness a curse that is plaguing a culture that has succumbed to radical individual 
individualism. He joins us today to talk about that book. He has spent more than 30 years in pastoral roles, being involved in more than 10 denominations. He spent nine years as a public school teacher, 20 years as a trial attorney, and most recently a radio broadcaster. With his daily show, Viewpoint, he's been referred to as a prophet for our time. In addition to King of the Mountain, he has authored more than six books, including Out of Egypt, Renewing the Soul of America, and Lasting Love, Enduring Secrets for Marital Success. Today he joins us to talk about his latest book, Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Georgine, you leave me breathless. Uh, maybe I, I must be about 150 years old. <laughs> well, I, I figured you must be. <laughs> well, certainly uh, some of that has been crossover periods of time, but uh, I did leave the practice of law 24 years ago. Uh, the Lord spoke to my heart that uh, I'd been pleading the cause of men, uh, men long enough, that he wanted me to plead his cause in the land as a voice of the church, declaring vision for the nation, America's greatest crisis hour. So uh, we up and uh, left 30 years of business ministry and political investment in Southern California and uh, formed Save America Ministries, dedicated to rebuilding the foundations of faith and freedom. So uh, that gives you the thumbnail sketch, and I'll tell you, uh, my heart has just been uh, broken uh, looking at the plight of our families in general, but fatherhood in in, uh, particular. Uh, Fatherhood, the destruction of fatherhood, is the destruction of all authority. It is a shaking of the fist not only in the face of our families and our fathers, but in the face of Father God himself. And uh, that puts us in a very unenviable position mm-hmm. as a country. I think many of us uh, consider that uh, the fatherlessness and the uh, the role of men in, in their families as being an insignificant uh, change in our culture. But you yeah. rightly point out, and I think there's, there's uh, biblical authority to back that up, that this is uh, the most significant social problem facing America. Well, I'm not the I'm not really the one to have said that. Uh, it's been said by numerous observers, uh, not necessarily Christian, but uh, secular observers, sociologists, and uh, politicians, and so on. They're saying there's just nothing like this. This is historic. It's unprecedented, and uh, it's it's causing such devastation at every level across our country. And it's been in the process for 50 years now. Mm -hmm. Ever since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, uh, my wife and I were married in 1966. So we've been married 51 and a half years now. But uh, we witnessed all of this. Uh, I witnessed this full first as a school teacher and then in my uh, practice of law for 20 years and as a pastor and so on and broadcaster. I've witnessed it all from coast to coast. And it's not a pretty picture. You begin the book with a reference to the Titanic, which is such a, a useful picture of, of the level of concern we ought to have. And you write, the lights flickered out, and in a thunderous roar, everything on the super ship seemed to break loose. Beds and boiler, broilers lurched as the black hull of the RMS Titanic tilted perpendicularly. Its three great propellers reared against the heavens, and then it was gone and 1,522 souls with it. This was a, a vessel that was thought unsinkable. 
unthinkable that there could ever be a disaster that would bring this uh, this thing down. And even those who were on board were unaware of the danger, the peril that they faced. Mm-hmm. Put put the Titanic prophecy, as you title your chapter, in perspective in terms of what we're facing. Well, Georgine, uh, the reality is that the hundred what is it, the hundred and sixth anniversary of the uh, sinking of the Titanic. Uh, will occur in about a week and a half. And uh, yes, indeed, 1,500 and some souls went to the bottom of Davy Jones' locker. None of them expected that to happen. Most of the people that were left on board were men, many of them fathers and grandfathers. Now, I want you to think for a moment. If you had been on board the Titanic... And you know, and you knew you would likely never see your children or grandchildren again. What would go through your mind? What would your legacy be? That's the issue. What would your legacy be? And of course, the subtitle to the book, uh, Hearts of the Fathers, is Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. That's what I'm concerned about. Uh, Ever since our first daughter was born, Uh, seven years after we were married, uh, this has been a a mantle of uh, responsibility that I have felt. Uh, And each of my three daughters, if they were to join you on the air, I think would confirm that their daddy uh, saw fathering and fatherhood as his premier responsibility after being uh, an honorable and loving husband to his wife and a servant of the Lord. <clears throat> now, in your book, um, Hearts of the Fathers, you cite the profound impact of fatherlessness. And again, in our culture, that is minimized to the point where fathers are virtually, in terms of entertainment media particularly, uh, are uh, unnecessary and uh, certainly not essential. What are some of these impacts uh, of fatherlessness and, and what can be done? Well, uh, first of all, uh, let, let's just show how dramatic the opposition to fathering fathers, men, and masculinity is. In 1996, excuse me, in 2016, Jill Soloway, who was receiving a, an award for director, best director or something, an Emmy Award, made a public statement that was aired all over the country. She said, down with patriarchy. I want you to think about that. Down with patriarchy. What she did was declare war against fathers, against men, against fatherhood, against all things masculine, and basically elevated the feminine to be lordship over our country, over our society, And this is exactly what God said would happen when a nation abandons him. He said women and children will rule over them. The prophets uh, foretold this. And uh, many believe that we're in the uh, stages of the, the final stages before the Lord's return. We see all of these things taking place in front of us. And uh, the great prophet Malachi Uh, 400 years before the birth of Jesus, was given a warning by God, a warning of compassion and mercy, but a warning that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he would send forth Elijah the prophet, 
to call the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest he strike the earth with a curse. Well, guess what? We are already stricken with the curse. The curse isn't coming. It's here. It's absolutely here. Uh, for instance, let's, let's link this to uh, the, the shootings. Did you know that almost all of the shootings in the schools in America had been done, perpetrated by young men who had no fathers? This is not a mystery. This is the clear indication. Everybody wants to cry for guns. Take away the guns. The guns are not the problem. The problem is fatherlessness. We're going to continue our uh, room. continue our conversation in just a few moments, but I do need to take a break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Charles Krismer. Krismeyer, he's the author of Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing our conversation with Charles Krismeyer. He's the author of Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. Now let's talk about uh, legacy and what, uh, what kind of legacy uh, lasts, because everyone leaves one, whether or not it's one worthy of, uh, of recalling is another matter. Isn't that interesting? We all leave a legacy, whether it's witting or unwitting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, but uh, the older you get, the more you realize you want to make sure you left a legacy that lasts. And uh, <clears throat> there, are, there are two different aspects of fathering, Georgie. Uh, one is what you might call a generic uh, secular view of uh, fathering, and that would be you provide for your children, you uh, uh, go to work every day, you make sure that they're protected and have a house over their head and that kind of thing, and uh, hopefully you will be present with them. The presence of the Father is the thing that really counts. And it's not that those other things don't count, but the presence of the Father is what counts. You'll remember uh, Moses back in the Old Testament. He said to the Father, God, he said, unless your presence goes with me, I just can't do this. Well, that's true. The Father's presence is just absolutely essential. If the Father is home, but he's just watching television or playing video games or whatever, his presence isn't really there. It's a figment of the imagination. It's a pretense. His presence is not there because there's no connection that's being made with the kids. When I came home from law, uh, from law practice every evening, and I had a very, very busy practice and so on, uh, I made out a point. We, we had meals together every night. Uh, There were no cell phones. There were no televisions on. Uh, We had real, legitimate, and personal conversations around the table. Every night, I would spend quality time with my daughters. I had three daughters and uh, would go, uh, you know, at bedtime and would share with them the principles of the Scripture, the stories, and uh, their applications. Well, that's the second aspect of fathering. The second aspect of fathering is uh, providing moral and spiritual direction, modeling by precept and by example. That is critically important, and you can't accomplish that by just sending your kids off to church or even going with them to church. That's not where the real fathering takes place. The real fathering takes place in my home, and home is where the heart is, and kids know 
whether their father's heart is really with them. So that would be the two overarching things. And of course, the book, Hearts of the Fathers, is not really like almost all the other books out there about fathering and so on. It's not really a culture war book, although it does have a lot of the statistics and all of that in it. But the primary focus of this book is on, okay, now what do we do? Now, what would God have me do, and how do I go about doing it? You refer to the foundational essentials of fatherhood. Share some of these um, and why they're so vital. Well, foundation essentials of fatherhood, the number one would be presence. You have to be present. If you're not present, uh, you're not going to accomplish uh, that which uh, God would have you accomplish. You have to have purpose. Purpose. Fatherhood doesn't just happen. You have to have a purpose. You have to have a vision. And that's one of the things that I try so hard in this book to accomplish is the casting of a vision for fatherhood. Uh, when we're in a situation, Georgine, where in 1995, George Gallup, pollster to the nation, went before the Christian publishing industry in Dallas, Texas, and declared we were a nation of biblical illiterates. Hmm. That said something. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're now 20-some years, 25 years down the track. And if, if you think it's gotten better, no way, no how. In fact, men are not even reading. Men are not even... Should I share with you what I just discovered? I just discovered that since this book was released on March 13th, this is fresh, hot off the press, but since it was released on March 13th, two-thirds of all those who are buying this book are women. Hmm. Now, why do you think that would be? I know who yes. they want to read the book. <laughs> well... Women want to read this book. All they have to do is see the cover, and they grab for it. Men are touched by the cover, but guess what? They don't have the vision. For the past, oh, I'd say at least uh, a generation, the number one cry of Christian women in this country from coast to coast has been, why can't or won't my husband be the spiritual leader of our home? I want you to think about that. If you think fatherlessness is a problem out there, oh no. Fatherlessness, the lack of true fathering vision and understanding and commitment, is every bit as strong among professing Christians. And it brings pain to my heart. When I wrote this book, it was the easiest of the nine books that I've ever written. People look at these books and they can't believe uh, how somebody could even write them. But uh, this particular book was the easiest of all. And the reason I didn't have to do a whole lot of research for it, it was as if God gave me the ability to crawl up in his lap as a father and have him whisper into my ear his heart for fathers. It's just it's hard for me to hold back the tears, even mm -hmm. as a lawyer. Hard for me to hold back the tears because I realize how profound the situation is. You call the command to discipleship a father's greatest responsibility. Yes. Well, <clears throat> that is the Great Commission. A lot of people think that uh, the Great Commission is about evangelism and going out 
to foreign countries or going out and getting people to uh, make confessions of Christ and so on. But that's not the heart of evangelism. Jesus said the heart of evangelism is teaching people to obey everything he's commanded. He said, you make disciples and I'll build my church. We've been busy building churches and haven't done much in making disciples. And a disciple is one who learns to follow the Lord by obeying his word and his, vo- and his voice. And this is one of the things that's missing in fathering today in God's house. And this is why lawlessness has become the earmark of our time. Just as Jesus and his apostles said it would be in these end times, that lawlessness would prevail. Well, guess what? God's fundamental, uh, what should we say, overarching uh, means of providing lawfulness and authority in the earth is through fathers. Mm. But we've had just about a desperate this situation is. Absolutely. We have just about a minute. But let me ask you, what's the most important message you have for men, for fathers and grandfathers about how to leave a lasting legacy? I would say, seek the Lord with a whole heart. Mm. Go before him. Cry out to him. Take Malachi chapter four, the last two verses and wait on the Lord. What would he say to you? I asked the Lord, why, how are the fathers going to turn, be turned to the children and the children to the fathers? The Lord said, there's only one way, and that's for the heart of the fathers to be turned to me. Mm-hmm. He says, return unto me. So what we have to do is ask, okay, Lord, how can I, should I return unto you? That's the hope for leaving a true legacy that lasts. The book is titled Hearts of the Fathers leaving a legacy that lasts. There's so much more in the book than our conversation did not reflect. Uh, The book is published by WND Books, and I would highly recommend it. It make a great gift for Father's Day, which will be upon us before we know it. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I appreciate your heart for men and for fathers and for talking with us today. My privilege, Georgine. God bless. Again, Charles Krismeyer, Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I read with interest an article in Christianity Today that um, had the headline, How Bread Became Ingrained in Ukrainian Christian Life. In the breadbasket of Europe, ministries bring loaves for hungry bodies and spiritual nourishment for the soul. You know, we're all curious, how are Ukrainians surviving? How are they dealing with the tragedy that has has uh, fallen on them? And this was interesting to me because there are believers who have chosen to remain in harm's way in order to uh, serve their countrymen. They make the point that for Ukraine, for Europe... Uh, Bread is a way of life. Ukraine's flag, now displayed around the world in solidarity, proclaims the nation's agricultural heritage with the yellow representing wheat fields and the blue representing the sky above. So now you know what that represents. Bread is very important in our culture, but Jesus said that we do not live by bread alone. That's a quote from a pastor there, the head of the theology department at Ukrainian Evangelical Theological Seminary. There's something invisible, something intangible, something that is beyond just physical bread. Well, as the war continues, pastors and churches across the country are working to bring people both the bread they need to feed their bodies and the bread they need 
for their souls. Inspired by the line in Isaiah 58, 7 about sharing bread with the hungry and housing the poor, Bread Trust is one of several ministries helping get loaves into the hands of Ukrainians. The U.K.-based charity funds local pastors who've remained in the country to continue to serve. They're able to purchase bread, other foods, and supplies for their neighbors in need. There are those that feel deeply committed and called to where they are. That's what Bread Trust Project Coordinator Phil Downward said. One pastor and his family stayed until their apartment building was bombed and they had no choice but to leave. They take... um, that takes a level of faithfulness and courage that is utterly remarkable. This is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers. Well, some ministries continue to bake the bread. They distribute. In the days after the war broke out, a Dutch outreach, um, the name is uh, difficult for me to pronounce. I don't understand how some of the vowels and consonants are pronounced in Dutch. It's located in Kiev, however, in um, Bravery. They want to rally enough bakers to continue to bake 24-7. They pass out loaves to hospitals, to the army, along with notes containing Bible verses. When Russia took over Crimea several years ago, they were highlighted in Christianity Today, the Bread of Life Ministry, a bakery that gave away one-fourth of its 2,000 loaves of daily bread alongside Bibles. So these are the encouraging inside stories of some of what's happening there under the most difficult circumstances one could possibly imagine. Slavic Missionary Outreach is an update um, in an update sent in March said that since grocery stores have not been open as much, its staff has tried to buy bread wholesale or make it themselves. Some of their neighbors had been going days without food. We have our own small bakery, a bread factory that bakes 1700 loaves of daily bread which are then distributed to hungry people of our, uh, by our staff. They wrote in a letter soliciting support. We don't know how much longer we can do this. We're trying to buy leftover flour uh, stocks from large bread factories that have closed. Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe, as you probably know by now. The war's impact on its wheat crop will extend globally. Already, reports um, expect the disruption Uh, will affect Lebanon and Egypt, which rely on imports for government-subsidized bread to feed the hungry. Together, Russia and Ukraine provide almost one-third of the world's wheat and barley exports. We talked earlier, it's actually late last month, uh, we talked about the impact it's already having in those countries in the Middle East. And as the Russian invaders attempt to cut off Ukrainians from their own crops and supplies, the oldest generation recalled the deadly famine caused by Joseph Stalin's seizure of goods the century before. The Soviet dictator had seized crops, livestock, and food itself. Well, following the conflict in Crimea, uh, the president of UETS reflects on this um, history in Bible Study magazine, making the point that for Ukrainians, bread is very significant, and significant rather. In 1932 and 33, we had the Holomodor, the man-made famine. Up to six million Ukrainians starved to death. Because of this, bread is sacred in our culture. You can't throw bread away. Well, the metaphor of Jesus as the bread of life has a lot of meaning for Ukrainians, and the image that the Bible is bread for the soul is very important as well. We use this to help others understand how vital the Bible is to our lives. Well, in September, some Ukrainian churches celebrate Harvest Day. During the church service, one pastor will hold up a loaf of bread while another holds up an open Bible. They pray for both, recognizing the need for both. The physical and the spiritual needs for bread are not competing, but complementary. 
The pastor of Grace Reformed Church in Kiev recently posted a video showing how certain parts of the supermarket, like the meat and seafood counters, were completely empty, but thanking God that there was still bread. Yes, we have bread, he said at the time, but in this period of time, we better understand words of the Lord Jesus, I am the bread of life. Ukrainian churches have developed a network for sharing supplies during the war. In the early days, they helped people evacuate. Now they're distributing supplies to those who are staying, like the elderly who have nowhere to go or refuse to leave their homes. The sirens go off so frequently that some of them simply remain in the basement of the buildings instead of going up or down the stairs each time. It's um, it's there that volunteers distribute bread and offer whatever encouragement they can. Additionally, the team distributes supplies to families of soldiers. Well, among the military, bread again offers them a reminder of hope um, when communion is offered. His team brings New Testament with highlighted passages of hope and encouragement. Around two or three dozen soldiers typically take copies from his background during the Balkan War and visits to other countries like Lebanon, Israel, North Ireland, This pastor has experienced the uncertainty, the fear and pain of people in traumatic circumstances. He never tries to impose his faith on them. But when people come to him with questions about God and suffering, he engages them in conversation. I personally don't believe in answers. I believe in good questions. When uh, when they ask me questions, I can ask counter questions to encourage them to think further, to think deeper, to think wider about the situation. The pastor says, well, many Ukrainians don't know where their next meal will come from. Many of their famed wheat fields may not bear a crop this year. However, those faithfully serving in Ukraine hope that there will be a harvest in the country. All the same, when you are in a situation like these people, you're more sensitive to the divine, to something that is beyond our humanity. We need the physical bread of nourishment for our bodies. But when we need also is spiritual bread. The word of God feeds our souls. And they're experiencing that in Ukraine. It's encouraging to read stories about how the church has stepped up and many have remained to provide some of the basic needs of the people there. And bread is playing a significant role in not only ministering to the physical needs of the people, but as an opportunity to remind or to teach for the first time the bread of life uh, that Jesus is that provides the spiritual needs the spiritual nourishment that is also needed. So remember, as I'm almost insulting you to suggest it, but remember to pray for the people of Ukraine. Pray for the church that remains there to try to minister to and provide practical help to those who have remained in the country. We've seen images uh, today from the last couple of days that are horrific. I won't even attempt to describe them because if you haven't seen them, I think you're better off not having them etched in your memory. But nonetheless, things are are bad uh, in some areas, uh, worse than others. Um, but we still can pray for Ukraine, uh, Ukraine for general uh, purposes and certainly for the church specifically, that God would continue to give them wisdom and resources to minister to one another and to minister to the country in general. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.